Action Park Media. Welcome to another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Ellen. And I'm Kevin Connolly in the booth, sitting here perplexed. What's the problem, Kevin? <laughs> what, what's going on, bud? Well, first of all, we got to talk about one thing is that we're no longer Cal Ripken. We missed an episode this morning. The first episode we missed. Yeah, this is true. You know, our, our team is uh, riddled with injuries. Kevin Dillon is on the long-term injured reserve. He's doing a movie. Yeah, yeah. You had a, a situation, which we're going to talk about. Listen, I, I would say that... We're not going to be able to do two episodes a week for the rest of our lives. I mean, we're not Good Morning America. I think we've done a really good job. We apologize. Podcast coming in a day late. We're going to do one this week. But better than that, we back it up because next week we've got a monster week. We're not going to say who the guests are, but next week's going to be a good week. I spoke to Adam Carolla's producer today. They do five a week. They do. I think we can do more, but this week... Things happen. I Things had, happen. I mean, you are wearing a weird blue hat. So let's start. I had a little dental surgery. So, uh, okay. So let me, let me just say on my end. Yeah. So you obviously had some work done to your hair. Correct? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, I don't know why this is embarrassing, but here's what happened because I mean, first of all, it's not embarrassing. I'm, I'm, actually, embarrassed. I'm actually proud of you. And you know, I would never, yeah. we give each other a hard time on this yeah. podcast, but I would never like make fun of, you know, I don't, you, would you think I was going to make fun of you? I no. would never make fun of you. By the way, like just so we're clear, I, I'm, I'm an insecure, vain motherfucker, but I, I don't even understand. I didn't know about this. What happened was we come on this podcast. I'm really like looking at your hair now. It's phenomenal, by the way. Okay. But we come on this podcast and I'm like, Tom Brady's head is freaking me out. You say, you know, something was done. If the goat has some work done. I, I want people to understand out there because it's a big deal for fucking men. Now, I, I made agree. it. I made I it into my fifties, which is good. But the the thing is, is that this is not like fake shit. This is like the vaccine. They give you some stuff, and your body hopefully responds and gives you back your old hair. And I had great hair. I mean, I used to brush it all everywhere we went. And I now, mean, you had a mullet, right? You you had a, always had, had a good head of hair. But listen, I think we can agree, and we could talk to everybody. We got a whole cast of characters sitting in the booth right now. And and I say this dead seriously. It could be a traumatizing thing for a young man to be losing their hair. Now, yeah. by the way, Doug, let's face it. 53 years old before it started to become a thing 52 for you. still. Next week, 53. Okay. But, you know, you made it into your 50s before you started going. Yeah. Well, it's all of a sudden, you know, what happened was, you know, besides that thing with the conversation, I started getting all these messages from people because I didn't know there was really anything you could do except for like Maury's wigs from Goodfellas, <laughs> which obviously I'm not going to do. By the and way, it, I would love to see. That'd be a great, that'd be a great uh, promo. To yeah, have you to do that it. jumping back. Into the... <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, Just you, you know, shirtless is too much for me to handle. Never mind your hair, but. But the thing, it was, it was, you know, it was, it's, it's getting thin in the front and I've seen people like they do these stem cell injections. You do a little thing, they put it on and all of a sudden you feel good. So anyway, the point is, is I'm proud of you for, for being the face of this quite literally with a weird blue hat. Well, hopefully we'll, I'll be the face of it soon. I can't wait till I look like Barry Gibb again and everything's great. (laughs) Who knows what's going to happen? But the point is, is that men, it is incredibly, it's an insecure thing. Like I walk around and all I do is look at fucking guys' heads now. I know you've been talking about it on the podcast. You and said, you also, look at all these young men with great heads of hair, which is I know borderline you, creepy, but... Yeah, yeah, I know you think it's creepy. So, but I mean, you walk around and you look at dudes and you see a little thinning, you, you detect weakness in them. You're like, it's weak. It's like this, genetic weakness. This guy's hanging on by a thread over here. Yeah, and you can... You can Apparently, we'll find out. You can reverse it to some degree. So I wanted some frontal coverage. So I is that what is that better. was that the category it falls under? Frontal I, coverage. I mean, I, I don't know what that. I don't know if they break it into category, but Doctor Zeering, who's fucking awesome, just made me feel comfortable. And uh, you know, they 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 put how you under. bad was the 
procedure? Well, the thing with the procedure, I'll tell you, like, I felt like, and I know you're not allowed to compare anything. These people are great, by the way. They could have been nicer, sweeter, make you feel more comfortable. Because I'm sure it's a very vulnerable position to be in, yeah? Depressing and humiliating. Right. There's like five women in there, and you feel- All staring at you, going, look at this guy's forehead, man. This guy needs these And by the way, they probably don't give a shit. The truth is, women- what they do for a living, right? Women don't care half as much as guys do. You know, I got a beautiful girlfriend. I mean, I'm like, why why haven't you been telling- Telling me that this COVID thing, anyway, I left something out, but Charlie Sheen said the COVID thing has gotten worse, and Charlie Sheen's fucking hair, which is all real, looks I didn't amazing. think his hair was that great. I loved bro. his hair. You I mean, did. look, uh, I love this. He's 55 Five plus years old. Right. I thought his hair. hair was great. He's got a good head of hair. But anyway, it's a genetic thing, and you know, we live in LA. The funny thing is that men are so embarrassed by this. The women are walking around with lips that look like the fucking Joker, which is not natural. And I personally don't think it looks good. I've never seen a woman with fake lips that looks good, but I'm seeing dudes with, with hair. That's their real Phenomenal hair. Phenomenal hair. This isn't sticking like a goat on top of your head. This is like the vaccine. It's not Maury. You're not Maury. I'm not Maury. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to be. I'm hoping it works out because I want to feel good and I want to feel good. And, right. and that the most important thing is that I, I think it's important. And you know, it's funny when I told July, I did tell Zulai about about your procedure. Didn't I tell you not to tell Zulai? And she said she said something though, and she's right. She said, you know, listen, if, if it's okay for a woman to go out and you know have whatever work they want to do to feel good about themselves, then why not? Why not? And I and I think it's I, I applaud you for. I love Zulai and I appreciate that. I still don't find the comparison. To me, this is like taking creatine and working out. This is a natural process that hopefully will will grow it naturally. Again, point and I'm is not that even... you're feeling. The point is that like you want to walk out of the house feeling like a million bucks and if they're in the back of your head you're worried about your hair you want to feel good yeah. and life is short you get one of them and now you're wearing a weird hat are we doing this hat the whole time <laughs> no once we have our real guest which we're going to talk about in a minute we got a great guest today i'll put on my my victory hat which is available for purchase anyway do you so- know how i knew about your hair uh i told you <laughs> no well you confirmed it but no. You said that you were having a procedure, yeah. and I, I, I told well, people uh, dental work. What happened? Well, you told me you were having a root canal, but here we are. We're having a conversation, and I'm, uh, you know, I get we've root canal. You would see some sort of pain, and I saw none of that. And then I saw you eating something. We were FaceTiming, and you were eating a meatball uh, Subway Uncle, sandwich Uncle or something. Uncle Paulie's Subway. No, you're eating a, he- Uncle you're eating a, you're here. Eating a hero. I'm like, you don't need a hero. You have a root canal. You don't need a hero. And then, uh, buddy, I. I saw you go. I was at Prince Street Pizza, and I saw you walking into the doctor. Now, I, I, I guess on sunset. Yeah, you're fucking. It, you, 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 I was there. You I, were no, following no, me. I was, wasn't following you. I was at the. I was at the pizza place. I saw you go in, and at that point, I, I just kind of put two and two together. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to embarrass you. And then you sent me the picture. It's a crazy. I, truthfully, when you, the picture is pretty scary looking. At first, I was like, Jesus Christ! Like I said, are you okay? And I tried to send you uh, Craig's vegan ice cream. Oh, that but it all of nice. a sudden got complicated, and I said, fuck it. But I, I thought about it. You didn't That's get it to me? Thing. I didn't well, get it to Well, you. let me tell you what was happening inside my house. Because five days ago, I was, you know, I didn't want to talk about it. I told people root canal. Root you know, canal. You got to come up with a better one. But you know, know me anything. 20 years. I'm not a good liar. I'm really not. I don't like to lie and a, this and that. So what happens is Sarah Sanderson uh, tells her mother, I got this root canal. Her mother's a nurse. The questions start coming in. Now you're and lying this and, and backpedaling, trying to cover yeah, for the and hair. Then I like, and like Sarah doesn't like to lie. And all of a sudden she's lying to her mother and she's like getting upset. She's like, I don't like lying to my mother. I'm like, it's not a big deal. Then I I posted some food and then the gloves were off. People That's like, how I felt, right? No, you didn't have canal. dental surgery. No root canal there, bro. Good for you. How long before we see if uh, there's results or not? I'm not sure. 
You know, I was like two weeks, you know, two months. Uh, this or was it- such an impulsive thing. I saw Chuck Sheen. I said, was I want to look was that like the that. Tipping point for you? Yeah, I mean, you, you've been like, kicking look, it around. Like, look, you got a great head of hair. I got great height. If I told you tomorrow you could go in for a procedure and you're six feet, you're gonna do it. I, I, I wouldn't. Think. I wouldn't do it because that would be really. Weird. Well, that would be weird if you could naturally grow right now. Can here, you imagine how handsome you'd be at here, six feet with that <laughs> fucking hair? I mean, here's here's the thing. I wasn't once tall. And then woke up one day. Oh, that's interesting. Short. So you've always been comfortable with this. I just have always been. And like we talk about, you know, people talk about like the eight years of short jokes on Entourage. And truthfully, you and I are close friends. If that really bothered me, we could have whittled those down to yeah. saying like, hey, Doug, do we really have to do this? I just never gave a shit. Yeah. It never bothered me at I, all. You know, I never. But it's like, it's not like, again, it's not like one day I was like, you know, hook dunking uh, a basketball. And then all of a sudden. You know what? I think you know, this last six months, all of a sudden you're sitting at home all day and like, you know, whether it's the COVID stress or natural genetics. Do you think that, that had anything to do with it? I don't know. Sped I, it up maybe? You know, I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I know Mike Tyson jumped in on a call and all of a sudden he's like, we he's, got old. We got you old. You took and, that way the wrong way, bro. Well, he was saying like, hey, I mean, you, got, you and Mike Tyson are the same age. Yeah. He's talking about Entourage, which was 15 years ago. I, I, I knew that comment hit you funny because he came in, you shaved. Yeah. You know what? You I'm hit, I hit the midlife crisis. Yeah, I got it to 53, 52 and 7 eighths. Next week's my birthday. And, uh, you know, it hits you. So anyway, I'm not embarrassed about it. I want Clearly all guys. not. You're wearing a weird blue hat. I can't tell you how many guys have called me, DM'd me, and are like, does Good it work? You. I right. want to do this. Does it do this? So anyway... Listen, Let's guys. see what happens. We and also, everybody's got to be different, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got to be different. The better your hair, the, bit, the easier it is. Like, if you go earlier, like, do you, if, do you wish you went two years ago? Well, I didn't really think I had a problem two years ago, but I wish I went a year ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. I wish I went a year ago. But anyway, Dr. Zero. But Zeering, it's also a hard thing to I just jump in to do, right? It's kind of like, I mean, you, you couldn't have been, but it's, I'm sure it's not something you're psyched about. I Listen, mean, I'm a You sh- go in, you lay down, and there's a bunch of people staring at your head. You know, it's kind of like how I went into the last marriage I did, like right. a fucking crazy person. It was right. impulsive. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just go get married. And the next thing I know, whoa, what I do? This, though, I actually, I feel good about it. I feel good about the hat. I feel good about Did, the fucking velour tracksuit. Yeah. That, no, this that, is one piece, man. This that, is great. I couldn't feel more comfortable. So you wake up. You go. Like, you, Is there a little anxiety? I had no anxiety. I don't know why. What did, you know, and and, and I want to keep reiterating, Dr. Zeering's fucking amazing. And everyone at that is office. Is the doctor of record, Dr. Zeering? Yeah. I don't know if he wants me to tell him his name or not. But right now, I would hope. I got to imagine. He's and Chelsea there. They were all so great. The only downside to the whole thing, I walk in and they have a beautiful office and on the TV there's a movie playing. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. It's American Assassin. Have you ever seen this movie? Yeah, I have seen it. The actually. opening yeah. scene is like like a mass shooting execution on the beach. Yeah, it's like a huge sea opening sequence of the, the snipers on the beach. I mean, it's like the, like an airplane when they're watching movies on the airplane movie and planes are crashing. That's what it felt like and I was like, whoa, is this a well, sign? What if you're watching a replay of the Maury's wig commercial? <laughs> it would have been bad. <laughs> anyway, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling I, confident. Your, your confidence in your, I mean, you're already a new man. I'm a new man. I'm a little worried about you today, though. Can why? I talk about why? So we got Jim Miller is coming on Jim as a Miller. guest. So let me tell you, this is a real writer. Like, I have always told everyone, I'm not really a writer. Like, I did it. I, I hopefully people enjoyed it. But I was never like like a writer. This guy wrote the definitive book with Tom Shales on Saturday Night Live, on ESPN. ESPN. He, uh, he wrote on his own CAA. That I want to talk about. And now he's writing, which we're not going to be able to talk about, unfortunately, because it's not out yet, but he's writing the HBO book, which he has spoken to, I believe, every major person involved with HBO in the last 30 years, except for two people. Guess who those two people are? Gandolfini. 
You know why? Because he passed away. Because he passed away. And who's the other person? Me. <laughs> That's right. Why do you think that is, Kevin Connell? I'm going to do it today. We're going to knock right, it out. We're good. Gonna so you're going to talk it. Yeah, so, take a walk around So I'm excited about the blue bottle. And then let's just do basic business things. So... Three million downloads we hit. Yeah, I mean, big. not a single dollar has been spent on advertising. That's not a knock. I, I know. You get upset. No, I don't get upset. But I'm saying, they, they, but but have you ever seen? Have you ever seen a Joe Rogan billboard? Have you ever seen a Joe Rogan commercial on TV? Have you ever seen podcasts? The biggest podcasts are all grassroots. Bro. So word of mouth, Joe Rogan. It's word of mouth, and you know this because there's nobody better than you at it. Uh, the grassroots thing, but it's just a hard thing to promote with regards to that. Like we yeah. put a billboard up on uh, Sunset Victory, the podcast. I mean, it's it's just it's a word of mouth. Thing. All right, well. Well, we're doing really well. We're and, doing really well. And over the last couple months, and by the way, the Charlie Sheen interview, uh, you know, I, it's a game changer for us. Greatest thing about it is, and I want to talk to, to Jim Miller about this because he wrote the definitive book about agents. And it does, for everyone out there, we're doing the Action Park Media Film Festival, which we'll talk I'm about in a second. I'm having a blast, by the but, way. But I mean, the gatekeepers really are coming down. You can go out like we've done on your own, make things happen, let people know what you're doing and what you're up to. And, uh, and it's been exciting. So tell me, the, the only thing I want to talk about for a second, you know, Connolly's really the man watching these Action Park Media uh, film festival entries when he believes they're the ones he wants to get them down to, 25, 30, then Kevin Dillon and I will look. But he sent me one yesterday because Rob Weiss, executive producer of Entourage Ballers and many other things, was was like acting in he one. Popped, I, it, pop, popped you know, up in one. I didn't know what. That was. First of all, I'm having the greatest time, and I, I've made a commitment. I'm going to watch every single movie. You've period, been very serious. Story. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you especially when I watch the first few, I see that people are really 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 spilling their guts and the least we could do is really sit and give it a look and you know listen are all of them first of all again we've talked about this doug and i joked around doug if we made a three minute film like could we even do that i mean maybe i don't know is Let it funny you, i saw a couple of the, of, of the films and i'm it's like funny right this well is, i sort of was like maybe they're more talented than me because i don't know what i would do if you I'm said saying. like i got three minutes you but know? you could see people like they picked their day and they had their actors and and it just you know it's just it's just been so much fun to watch these movies and you know uh you could see there's beginners and then there's some people you're like all right this guy <laughs> this guy didn't this guy knows what he's doing you know you see some people and, and where it's gonna get tricky is it's not uh, there's some things that are just hilariously funny and there's some takes on victory the podcast and all this kind of stuff but but there are the you know the idea was creativity shot selection originality all this kind of thing so well, it's going to be interesting to see because i think we're there's just no way that we're just going to be able to highlight one we're going to have to we're going to have to post 10 of these things. So least. you may actually use your Instagram to post your, yeah. <laughs> your dormant 260,000 followers. Connolly, this is an interesting 268. thing. 268. I want everyone to know because this is a social media company. Connolly doesn't like to post. He actually is. And I, I, I do want to discuss this with you. It's a psychological question. I put the victory question. thing up there. Yeah, we got a couple of posts out of you. But what I, I like to say is interesting about Connolly because I think it's a, uh, it's a thing about your psychology. A star in front of the camera. But you actually don't love to be in front of the camera. And you don't like attention on yourself per se. Um, you, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I want to sound I'm not like trying to act cool. No, I don't think But I'm, I'm a private. I'm a a private yeah. guy, you know, right. and I, I just am. I've always, I always have been, and you know, even my, you know, Zula is always like, you know, you never want to take pictures, and I, it's different to be acting. Like, okay, here's the scene, we're in wardrobe. Yeah. That I don't have a problem with cameras, right. but just I don't know. I'm, I get dare it. I say I'm shy. I get no, I think you are, and you have anxiety, which is which I is do fine. Have crippling anxiety. But I will say we got to get you on that because the, the, the thing for me is I want to take your two hundred sixty thousand followers, and I want them to check out the podcast because I, I assume. I mean, I'm pretty sure at this point they know uh, about the podcast, but I assume that they're. 
following you not because you destroyed the notebook. I'm assuming they right. follow you because they like Entourage and they it's like probably Dylan. Probably so, heavy you know, uh, Entourage component. You know, or is Instagram there an unhappily <laughs> ever after group out there that's like dying for it that? It ain't because of John Keel. Let's put it that way. So Dylan is off shooting his movie. He's off the radar. I knew it. They're making a movie in a, in, a, in a short period of time. It's a tough schedule. And Dylan right now is buried yeah. in dialogue and scenes. And he's the, the Dylan is just in a different I, zone yeah, strategy. But I, we got to get him on next week. I sent Dylan a message like 3 million downloads with a smile and an exclamation Nothing. point. Not, I thought we'd right. get That's amazing. But right. anyway, he, he, he don't may really not give know a what shit. that means. You know? he's, got, he's got a movie going. Okay, right. other things. We're trying to get guests now. Now we're going out there. People are requesting people. Malcolm McDowell, who I've, I've texted on Instagram, but I can see he hasn't read it yet. Guessing Malcolm McDowell's not the kind of guy that like sits there and combs through his DMs. <laughs> Probably yeah. not. Probably well, not. Linda Clark as well, which, you know, I reached out to the manager and I've had so no. So I'm Linda Clark, who I love. And we're we're going to get somehow, right. but she's got a big podcast coming out about the OC with uh, Rachel Pilson. But anyway, hopefully we'll get Melinda Clark on. That'll ne- be fun. Next week, we're going to have one of my, it's my birthday, and we're going to have one of my favorite comics who, uh, should I say he roasted me at my birthday? He did roast okay. you. He roasted birthday. me. Should I, it's Jeff Ross. Jeff gonna, Ross is going gonna, is gonna to be uh, on the podcast next week. And let me tell you something. This was my 45th birthday party, and Kevin Connolly, which I will post the video of Jeff Ross roasting me, was laughing so hard. It was like De Niro in Cape Fear. And and I've never heard anyone that well, hysterical. So it just was funny because he was roasting you, and he was right. So he he had been briefed on your on your stuff. And I, and listen, I, I'm like again, we talked about it. I'm shy. I'm sensitive. I would the last thing in the world, especially at my birthday party, I would ever sit front and center for somebody roasting me. I would, I'd rather set myself on fire. I'm just not built for it. I don't, I, my skin is you know is what too he didn't thin, roast me for. But I was laughing my ass off at you. And I also had a broken leg and was probably hopped up on some fucking painkillers and that in a vodka. Well, we'll talk about that whole party, but you know what he wasn't roasting me on? On my 45th birthday? My fucking hair, because it was amazing. Right. So, well, he's, hopefully I mean, yeah, it'll be he, back. He, he's never saying anything about anybody's hair. I guess we could roast him. Yeah, right? we could roast him. He's got the want. worst hair in the business. <laughs> but anyway, by my, 50, my big roast. by my 54th birthday, I'm hoping to have that hair. Let's take a break, and we're going to come back with a great writer, a real fucking writer. This is a real serious interview. Yeah. Jim All Miller. Right. Welcome back, Victory the Podcast. I'm excited. You know, we're obviously we're getting this is a real interview we're about this. This is a real we're interview excited. which Connolly may or may not have prepared for. I did. So <laughs> I as I said, I read earlier, the ESPN book. Did I, you read the ESPN I did read the ESPN book and I actually have them all here. But anyway, Jim Miller wrote a couple with Tom Shales. Those a great are TV books. writers. I mean, Doug, you couldn't do that if you were stranded on an island. You if you gave like me five hundred million dollars in a in a duffel bag and said I have to write this, it would never be right. done. So I want to talk a little bit about that process with Jim Miller. Thanks for, for coming on. This is really Thanks for having cool. me. You know, Jim wrote why, uh, for me, this is, all of it is interesting, but for some reason you have the tastes of things that I love. He's got the definitive podcast about Almost Famous, which is one of my favorite movies, and Cameron Crowe is one of my favorite writer-directors. And he's got the definitive podcast about Curb, which Larry, we all know, is my fucking idol, and then obviously you love him as well. Um, and I spent the day yesterday uh, listening to the podcast, watching Almost Famous, listening to you with Bill Simmons a bunch of times, and you wrote the definitive agenting book. So, Well, that's um, the big one. That's the one I want to talk so about. So we're going to get into that. I haven't read that one yet. About us, but I, I do want to talk about process for because we have a lot of writers that listen to us. How do you approach doing doing an opus like these books that you write? How does that begin, and what what is your kind of way that you get into it like that? Uh, you know, it's always interesting to compare the outline at the beginning of the book and when it's finished. My son was studying journalism. I said, "Here, take a look at these both of these versions." Because if you do it right, then the outline at the beginning resembles nothing. 
to the one at the end. And for me, it's all like, you remember that game, Shoots and Ladders? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have something you think is going to be really cool, and you get there and you think, it wasn't that big a deal. Right. You know, it really wasn't. And then all of a sudden, though, somebody will mention something sideways, and it's like, wait a second, what, what did you just say? That happened? Or she was about to be on that show? She was the lead of that show until negotiations broke down, and then... There's a whole other rabbit hole you go down. So I kind of, you know, it's like a treasure hunt. You're just, uh, I guess it was, you know, I guess it's happened on every single book. You, you, the disparity between what you think you're going to be writing about and what you wind up writing about. And are all the books that you've done, were they pre-sold or you come up with an idea and then you go, let me go pitch this around or they come to you and say, we want to do a book about this or how does that work? I mean, I don't sit down at the keyboard unless I have a contract. But I, But the interesting thing is, that I don't tell the place. So like when I signed the deal for ESPN, I went to them and they go, well, that's nice that you did that, but we're not going to cooperate. So I wasn't allowed on campus for a year and a half. And it gets a little sticky when you've committed, you know, to do this book and it's been public. And so you just try and work around it. And I don't think Richard Lovett was particularly pleased with Brian that I decided to do the CA book. I didn't ask them beforehand. Because um, you can't, it's it's awkward. Because then you start to get into you know Faustian bargains. So we'll let you do it, but we want to see it, or we want to do this or that. And so just you just got to. And, and Richard Lovett and Brian Lord are like you know two of the biggest agents of all time who took over CAA from Mike Ovitz and Kevin, right? And Kevin, They're scary dudes. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, as an actor, you don't want any smoke with uh, Lovett and Brian Lord. <laughs> no, although it, although I want to get into this because the world is changing, even from when the book came out, which is four years ago. I mean, you know, the, the agents have less and less power as the days go along, and I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested to hear all of your takes on how the landscape you see is changing. You wrote Saturday Night Live, which. I grew up, you know, I, I never really did anything that would get me to be a performer, but I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. When I was a kid, Nettie Murphy and John Belushi and Aykroyd and all those guys, Lorraine Newman, who's actually an Instagram friend of mine, Kevin Connolly. Just Talk so about know. an unattainable goal you set for yourself. I mean, you <laughs> know what? I never even really... You could have been a writer on SNL. Well, I tried. I submitted at one point. I never right. got a call back. Letterman, too. Didn't get called back from either one. So did you grow up? Pop culture, comedy, was that kind of your thing? Sports or what What was it? I mean, sports, but uh, no, I, I think I grew up much more interested in politics. And uh, but I but I do. I mean, all of these all of these books have a kind of a shared history in the sense that and even HBO, the book I'm doing now, which is. All of them started in the in the 1970s. All of them started from like the most humble beginnings, right? So at 11:20 on the very first episode of Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase says to someone, "What do you think I should do after this?" Because like he thought it was gonna he, he thought it was gonna crash. You know, nobody thought it was gonna be anything. I mean, ESPN was a pile of mud, and everybody was laughing at them. And CAA, those guys had just been fired from William Morris, and their wives were literally opening up bridge tables to put phones on so they could answer them. I mean, so... And they were in their early 20s, too, these guys, right? When I mean, they started CAA, 23, Yeah, late, 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 to, late, 20s. late 20s. Yeah, and they were... And they had no expectations. I mean, William Morris had basically told them, you'll never work in this town again, the famous line. So, and then HBO. I mean, HBO almost died a couple of times. So, I think, you know, they're all still big, iconic brands. Each of them has gone through their big changes. When I uh, finished the ESPN book, it was a uh, ESPN was at 100 million homes. It's now on like 74 million. And you think that downward decline is going to continue? Or, or In a word, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, without a doubt. It's a problem. Well, yeah. when I, you know, when I think about ESPN, you know, there was a time where, you know, you had to be in front of your TV at eight o'clock to watch Sports Center, or you didn't know what happened in the world of sports. And now on your phone, whether it's Instagram, I, there's nothing by, by eight o'clock at night. I know everything that there is to know about sports through social media, whatever it is. I mean, you watch stuff live. So why am I tuning in when I used to be like, oh, I have to, I have to, SportsCenter's on. You got to watch SportsCenter to know who won your games and that's where you got your highlights and now it's just on your phone instantly. So yeah. I, I, I could see that. You know, that's well, a- the whole thing is wild. I mean, ESPN, when I was growing up, I mean, it was, bullfighting and there was nothing that anybody would Australian be Australian rules football Australian rules football which was you know was okay but you know it, Dan Patrick Stewart Scottier when these guys uh, were like on air and they were doing their it was just it was it was great I, I honestly thought it was one of the best shows on, it was a, probably the best hour of television yeah you know? no it was Sports Center was amazing and, and everything that ESPN did which is now there but you're right it's everywhere now and it's the same thing with you know I want to get into the CAA book a little bit because obviously we did on Entourage, a lot of stuff with with agents. I mean, what was your feeling about how we captured agenting on Entourage? Well, you had an advantage that, quite frankly, doesn't exist in the real world because, you know, when I was doing the CA book, a lot of those guys and women, when I would want to talk to them, they had never talked to the press before. They don't want to talk to the press. They, you know, if they're doing their job right, they're basically behind the client. They're invisible. And so you had this unbelievable advantage, which is that you created this mythic character who, so we had this personality in the foreground, the work was in the background, and we never got to see that slice of it. You know, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, Kevin Uvain, you, you could sit down with him for, for two hours, and he's so polished and so aware of what he wants to say and what he doesn't say. He's not going to make any mistakes, and he's not going to show you his personality like Ari would or anything like that. So, I mean, that to me was the real, that was the judo move of the series, to actually be able to see these people when we're not studying them or when they feel like they're not being watched. Right. It's and that, it's that Derek, they would say about Derek Jeter, like he'll talk to you through the screen door, but he's not going to, right? And right. You know, you're not going to trip up Steph Curry in an interview about But you something. sat, you sat with the real Ari Emanuel, who Ari Gold is based on. He let his guard down. Then because he, I mean, he, to me, is just an unfiltered human being. Whenever I've ever been with him, he doesn't care. I don't know how it was with you as writer. Was he on guard or? No, I mean, look, we talk a lot on background, so he knows that I'm not going to be quoting certain things. But I think Ari has changed. Ari, I mean, even just over the last, between interviewing him for the CA book and now for the HBO book, he's, I'm not going to say he's an elder statesman, statesman, he's still in his 50s, but he's a corporate leader. He's a, he's a leader of a company that, you know, I still think they want to go public one day. And so I think his whole, he's just not, He's not id the way it used to be. I mean, he's like literally transferred to superego. I mean, he has a re- he feels like he has a responsibility to his employees. He feels like he's messaging about the culture and all that stuff. I mean, the the Ari that you captured was uh I mean, obviously much more compelling and much more <laughs> riveting and much more much better for television, but um I think he has, you know, calmed down. I mean, there are times that he goes to Defcon 1 now. And you have to be a really important client or has to be something that's really, really screwed up for him to get ignited the way he used to. But um, it's been interesting to watch him change. Ari Emanuel used to tell me I I did not write him as good as he was and that he was funnier and he was more aggressive. And, you know, one time we were at we went to the Laker game and uh, 
he was doing a whole performance, how you don't know how to write me, you can't write this. And he's like, watch this. And he gets on the phone and starts talking to somebody and he's putting on a, a bit. But then the guy said something to him that actually pissed him off and he was gone from the bit and the entire Palm restaurant packed before a Laker game was watching the real Ari Emanuel really actually make Ari Gold look small because Ari Emanuel, when his mouth went going, and he actually one time hung up on me and my father. Oh, he eviscerated you. He get eviscerated. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and he's definitely, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but he's definitely mellowed. And, you know, for everyone who doesn't know, the agenting business really has changed. Endeavor now, they're trying to buy the rest of the UFC, a $4 billion thing, because they do want to go public. What, what do you think? I mean, where is the future of agenting? I mean, I think you look at their, I mean, I don't want to sound nerdy like business school, but just look at the revenue pie. I mean, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, so much, the majority of their revenues were coming from client services. And by the way, their client services went like at CA, you know, they had like 20 directors who were getting first dollar gross. They had like 20 actors and actresses who were getting like 20 million just to say hello to them. And then first dollar gross. I mean, those, those are the days, right? And now... I mean, uh, you know, when I figured it out for the book, I think at the first time I told Lovett, he didn't believe me or maybe he doubted me, but CA Sports was making more money than CA Movies or television. I mean, you would have never dreamt that when CA Sports started. And now at WME, maybe it's 30% client revenue. I believe that was the last time I I heard. I mean, so you got their their companies. I mean, they're they're doing UFC, they're doing bullfighting, they're doing you know events. I mean, not in the pandemic or something, but they've you know vertically integrated, and uh, and it's not so much. So as a result, if you lose a client now, it's like okay, but it's a grain of sand on a beach. I mean, obviously they want to keep clients, particularly their important ones, but it's not the kind of situation that it was you know, 10 years ago. It's what's interesting because, you know, we wrote so much about losing clients and fighting to keep clients. And and you say that now, I mean, I don't even have an agent right now and I don't need one. I sold my last two things without an agent. I don't even contemplate looking for an agent right now, you know, and uh, I, I think what you're saying is pretty fascinating because they ruled the world. I mean, you know, and Ari who, you know, again, I love Ari, so there's nothing bad about him. But Mike Ovitz was the original, the, the king of Hollywood who ruled this town with, you know, pretty much an iron fist. Do you think there's ever going to be a person like that in this town again who would have that kind of power? No, no, I don't. I don't. Even Ari, I, I mean, WME is gigantic and they have an amazing client list, but I don't think one person can have that kind of power. Not, not to mention the product is so spread around. I mean, it's not even like there's like five studios. And he used to be like the head of the five families. You know, right. you could sit down and you, I'm going to, if I don't, if you don't get this, I'm calling, you know, so-and-so next. And there's a lot of fear. Now there's like 400 places to take stuff and who knows? I mean, you, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of, as much leverage as there used to be. Right. I mean, there used to be three networks, right? It was ABC, CBS, yeah. NBC, then Fox Cable. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Just, you know, I moved out here in 92. But also, you know, I was talking to uh, Adam Carolla's producer this morning about, you know, the down, the, the demise of radio. And basically the podcast is now this thing. And, you know, you don't need anyone. Kevin Connolly, he gets the green light podcast right now, which I don't know. Jim Miller should be on Action Park Media. Well, he I does mean, good long form stuff. I, I, I want to talk about his long form stuff. I, I'm, I'm looking at these books. Before you actually sit in front of, <laughs> aside from having a contract, how much actual research goes in? Is it months? I mean, how long, top to bottom, you, you close your deal and you're writing CAA powerhouse? 
How long is it from the time when you close that deal to when you're holding a hard copy of that book in your hand? What's Three and a half years. Jesus Christ. Well, what we could really... Worse than a movie. What we could talk about, in my experience, because I spoke to you about the CAA book, which whenever that was, but the HBO book, which I know we're not talking about. Jim's going to have an amazing book out soon. We're not allowed to discuss it. Connolly, after this, you're going to do an interview with him because he's got everybody it. in HBO. But... I think we first spoke two years ago already, right? So, yeah. and when is that book coming out? I think in the fall, unless I fall on my face. Um, it's it's uh, right now. I'm climbing Everest on a cold day in my shorts because I got to cu- cut a lot. I find it so fascinating because me when when I sold Entourage, my my agent at the time, Jeff Jacobs, gave me the Wire Bible which was like a novel, you know? He said, this is what you need to go sell to the, to the kings at HBO. And I looked at it, I'm like, honestly, I'm not, I'm not capable of doing that. I think to take this much material and figure out how you're going to organize it and where the important things are going to be, is it the story starts to reveal itself while you're doing it? Or Yeah, you know, I mean, one of my favorite sculptors said, uh, somebody was asked him once, um, how do you sculpt such beautiful women? And he said, uh, I take a block of granite and I chip away at everything male. and and I feel like that's you know you just and the bar gets higher you know like there are times when people well told me a story a year and a half ago I thought yeah that's I think that's in I mean that's fantastic and then all of a sudden you're you you know it's like this chapter I'm cutting today I mean it's just it's it's hard it's really hard because because you you were attached to it yeah and you know and you can't fall in love with everything you can't look and by the way when you interview I interviewed Right now, 657 people, I think. Right so, <laughs> And not Kevin Cobb. <laughs> and, and, you know, and the thing is that you build a relationship with these people. You talk to them. That Sometimes they're texting you from their car. Like, I just thought of this story or did I sound like an idiot yesterday or I forgot to tell you this or whatever. And you start to really, you you respect them and you can't help but like them. I mean, there's a real, there's like, the funny thing is like, uh, I, I hate to sound uh, the opposite of a cynic, but there's a lot of fucking smart people out there. Right. It's like, I mean, some days I, if I were to show you my, like you mentioned David, you got the phone with David Simon. I mean, that is, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Better I mean, interview just, than I was. Huh? He really, he's really, he's, he's like, <laughs> he's a super, genius. I mean, he's, he's, a genius. he's just, he's just, it's, it's otherworldly, right? Yeah. And then you all of a sudden you talk to... And then you get on the phone with Doug Ellen. You go, no. eh, not so much. <laughs> Look, I am <laughs> what I am. You know? No, no, no. But I mean, but there are like, I'm talking about the people that we don't, that people who watch HBO don't know about. Right. right. You know what I mean? That there's a 26-year-old development executive who saw Lena Dunham's movie, student film, Tiny Furniture, and said, wait a second. You know, she's got something to say and she knows how to say it. Right. And like brings, like that person is like... Okay, (laughs) that person deserves as much acclaim as anything because they're doing their job and they're great. And it turns out she's really smart. And it's like over and over and over again, you know? So it's. So you've established yourself as a guy that writes these long form stories, right? A guy who can't edit. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel now, okay, like CAA, I I can't can't imagine what a wild ride that must have been for you behind the scenes. But now people know your work and they know. Do you, when when it's like, oh shit, did you hear the news? You know that Jim Miller's writing the the book. Like, do you, does that scare people? Do they want to get on your good side? Is it like, oh boy, here we go. Can we shut this down or... You know how do how do people feel about you? Like when you started the HBO book, what what was the what's the initial feedback based on sort of your initial you know your, your some of the other work that you've done? I mean, uh, are oh, they running scared or 
No, I think sometimes, look, you know, I mean, I don't mean it like a, but I mean, they've all been bestsellers. I haven't had to issue a correction, got, you know, nice reviews. It was really cool. Um, last month, New York Magazine called the Life from New York, the best book that's ever written, a comedy series or comedy or television or whatever it was. I mean, like, so you think, so people like, think you're going to get it right or they hope you're going to get it right. You know, trying to write a book of record on these, on these places. But when I was doing the CA book, there was one actress who I really, really, really wanted. And she said, I don't, I don't know what you do to people, but you get them to say things and I'm scared to death of what Slipping you would get me to whatever, say. Right? And I'm not, I'm literally, I love your book. I'm not going to talk to you. Well, it's and interesting because I mean, Jim, you're you're listed as an investigative journalist. I am. You know, well, it says uh, you know on the internet, and you know, Kevin and I went through an experience. I mean, we sat with a guy from some magazine for days who who pulled an almost famous on us. I mean, he was. And by the way, I, I mean this sincerely, and hopefully, you get this from me from how forthright I've been with you. Whatever, we'll see what's in the book. But we are what we are. There's not a lot of hidden things. This guy eviscerated us in a way that that I would literally. Which guy are you talking about? The guy from Austin was like wanted me to read his wife's script, and then he just trashed us like we're a bunch of party boy losers. Which honestly, I've never been a party boy, not since college, high school, or anything. So even when you called me, which I love your work. And I was like, you know, nerve wracking. And then like, well, like to his point, you don't want to say the wrong thing, right? Like what he's saying about the actors or if you get going but down also, the road and yeah. once you get talking and then you go, you hang up the phone and you go exactly what Jim is saying. You go, Shit, man, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But even not your own conversation. Somebody else might say something about you that you don't have a chance to defend yourself. And once it's out there, right. it's out there. So I imagine it's pretty hard. And that's why I say with these agents, with the all the people you got from SNL, you know, it's 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 got to be really challenging and you get everybody. You know, except Connolly, but you get everybody. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I, you know, that has nothing to do with me. I think it's 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 great for them to want to cooperate, and I think that they want to be uh, part of making sure that it gets right. I mean, because there's always this Rashomon thing that goes on. You know, I mean, I could I could spend all of the books. I mean, there was a meeting at HBO to talk about Entourage, and somebody's, yeah, well, you know, Jeff Jacobs, you know, he couldn't shut up in the meeting, and then somebody's like. Like, you know, he, Jeff Jacobs didn't even talk. You know? <laughs> right. It's like, Ari said everything. Doug Ellen sat on the couch like a lamp. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and that was it. You know, I mean, like, that's true, by get, the way. But, but, but I could, like, just literally just line up those things. It's not particularly instructive. It's not fun. I mean, there are pivotal moments when I might do that, you know, because sometimes people reveal their narcissism or, you know, um, their, the way that they want to manage history. And right. so there's always, you know, there's always that problem. I mean, sometimes people will tell me a story and I think, oh, that's going to mean like 15 calls to other people trying to report. To back up that story. Yeah, right. to, to, to really figure out what happened. Because you can't just throw it in there because somebody said it. But you guys, can we talk about Entourage for a second? Yeah, of course. Because yes, of course. you guys have an interest. There's a powerful duality, right? There's like what actually happened. And then there's like the de facto branding of the show. Right, because so everybody is like when I, you know, when I was doing, when I was talking to people inside HBO, they were talking about some people were talking about Entourage, you know, with all the cursing and all the nudity, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's interesting about that because you guys didn't have as much nudity as everybody thinks you did, but not because, nowhere near as much, right? But because it was the milieu and it was because of the pacing and the dynamic of the show and the world, it was like. 
people all of a sudden conflate that with what the show was. It's one of the most upsetting things to me. And again, some so, people... That's a soft spot for Doug. No, but some... It's, it's right. a sore spot. But some people hit me, including some asshole on Facebook yesterday, said something about the women on Entourage. And I find it so offensive because the truth is, I really am sensitive to those issues and I'm actually kind of reserved. And when the show was happening, guys used to come up to me all the time. We want more sex. We want more nudity. And I'm like, listen, that's not what this show's about. Period. End of story. It's about friendship and it's about this and that. But the day before we aired, the executive who I love and was great, but she said, you guys, you're going to get killed tomorrow in the reviews because this is not what we do. We do smart, smart shows. That's what she said to me. And that sounds like Carolyn. It wasn't Carolyn. It was Sarah Condon, who I love. and right, was, She was great. You know, they were all great. But, you know, I was like, wow, I, I've killed myself for a couple of years doing this. And what I thought I was doing was something else. But, you know, revisionist history does come back and, and different things can happen. So I'm glad that you look back on it. And that, that's what wa- leads me to to get into some of your other work, because for me, there are, there are things you see in life when you're a, and I do not consider myself an artist. I consider myself someone who tries to entertain people in some way that I like, but there's things that I see that I wish I did. I wish I made. And Cameron Crow keeps fucking doing them over and over and over. It's like, literally, I saw Almost Famous with Jagana. Yeah, no, but I watched last night. He wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, I Jeff mean, Spicoli right there. and you know, even though, you know, he didn't direct Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which Amy Heckerling, she's great, but it felt like he directed it just because it has that vibe. And from the opening scene of, of Almost Famous, like I got tears in my eyes watching him with his mother. I can't even explain why it felt like, felt like how I grew up. What is your, like, what is this thing you have with Almost Famous that, that, cause that's what worked for me. I saw that movie, which Four times in my life, I think I've gone to the movies two nights in a row to see the same movie. Uh, once was talk radio. Once was almost famous. Um, it doesn't even matter what the other. But anyway, what 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 is your what's this thing that I you mean, love I, so much about it? First of all, I mean I'm a music freak. But second of all, he just I think it's the perfect story. I could not wait for my daughter Sophie to turn twelve because I said I know what we're doing on your twelfth birthday. I calculated some people. By the way, it's like interesting to hear some people thought 10, some people thought 15 or whatever. I said, on your 12th birthday, we're going to sit down, we're going to watch Almost Famous. It's going to blow your mind. And sure enough, by the time she was 14, she's like, Dad, can I have tickets to Coachella? So like, you know, yeah. I mean, no, no surprise, right? But I mean, it is such a beautiful movie. And you know, the thing that people forget is, you know, he did Jerry Maguire beforehand, which is above the rim, reverse slam dunk. He had the keys, he could have done you know, any kind of franchise movie or anything like that. He was and writing he, his own ticket at that point, yeah. Anything, right? And he'd been trying to write this movie for 10 years. That's another thing I love about Almost Famous because sometimes when you, you know, I mean, it's all about sticking with it and stuff, but he used that capital to get it made, to get Almost Famous made. And uh, there, isn't, there isn't a false moment in that movie. And, and then I, I was able to, like, talk to him, and, you know, it's really weird. Think about Francis McDormand, right? Well, originally he thought about Meryl Streep. He's then he's, it turns out he spent three months with Brad Pitt. You know, for Billy's Natalie Portman was think was you know he was thinking about Natalie Portman for 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 Kate's. I mean, it's like and Sarah Polly. But I mean, the point is that like somehow with all that stuff, it literally worked out. I mean, if Brad Pitt had done the movie, um, I mean, obviously it still was going to be a great movie, and Brad Pitt's a great actor. But you can't have some of those scenes where they're all like fighting with each other because they're all on the same level and they're a little resentful that he's getting, you know, a little bit more wattage because it would have been, duh, yeah, Brad Pitt's going to get more wattage. Right. You know, I mean, you can't take away any of that stuff. So, I don't know. I just think that there's 
there's so many moments in there, not to mention the fact that at the end of the day, um, you know, Cameron went back to high school to do the book, Fast Times, yeah. and then he adap- adapted it. He's a journalist. Right? Yeah. Like, he's a real journalist. And so, he's a real writer. <laughs> he, he, I mean, there's, there's countless examples. I mean, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone was signed on the dotted line to do Beverly Hills Cop and backed out while they were in pre-production. You know, listen, Eddie Murphy steps in. Can you add, I mean, well, Beverly Hills, was a huge star at the time. It's just hard to Well, imagine. Beverly Hills Cop was not written as a comedy. And, and, and if you look at the movie and you take out Eddie Murphy's comedy, it's not really a great screenplay. It would have so, been a Stallone movie. But, 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 but anyway. Marty Brest directed the hell out of it. it it's, great, it's great directing and the action's great, but it's, the storyline's a little silly. Eddie Murphy, it's just watching right. one of the great comic performances of all time but it's like when kate comes on in almost famous which goldie hawn's one of my favorite actors and i didn't even know it was her daughter when i saw that movie and i Did just you not re- put that together when you first saw then it? when i saw that movie i had no idea i'm watching this movie and i am like that movie was so fucking magical to me the first time i saw it i wasn't thinking about who's in it i wasn't thinking about anything i wasn't thinking that the music was fake i was just i was just captured in a way and after i'm serious i left depressed because i'm like I'll never make something that good. And, you know, look, we did do two things on Entourage. We had our almost famous yeah, moment. Vince gets on the By the way, thing. that's the next episode. You know, which, which people can say it was ripped off from almost famous. But no, it was inspired my, by it. It was completely inspired right. by it. And obviously, Jerry Maguire, there's, there's so much. And Say Anything and Cusack and, and, and everything about it. But so you also got this thing, though, with my other idol. Like, these are two of my top guys with, with Larry David and, and Curb and... The best. They're shooting that now. Yeah. Unbelievable, by the way, because I wrote a Curb Your Enthusiasm spec script that led to Entourage. And he's still going. And we're like the hacks that are talking about <laughs> this show. Name, name, the name another show that took a six-year hiatus. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the beauty of HBO, though, right? Because you couldn't do that somewhere else. Right. I mean, maybe now Netflix might let you do it or something. But Larry came and, got, came and went as he, as he wanted to. And they totally adapted it to him, which is, you know, the only way you can do it. The, the only way you can do it with Larry. Because... Um, he doesn't need to be doing this, but I think he really, really enjoys it. You know, I can't wait. I'm, I'm going to read this the, the CAA powerhouse book. Just I, so you know, just so you know, Bill Simmons read it before Jim got on the show. I'm just <laughs> no, that's why he sold his company for two hundred fifty million bucks. <laughs> was there ever? Didn't I want to use strong arm as the as the you know the word? But was, did it? Was there that moment where it was like, were you watching your back? Were you looking over your... No, but I mean, I think Richard, at one at the retreat before it came out, mentioned the book that was going to be coming out. said, so we don't know what's in it, but you know what? We'll survive and, you know... Um, Richard Lovett, who's the head of it at the retreat. Oh, I'm sorry. He's yeah, telling yeah. everybody, right? Yeah, and so, I mean, I think, look, I think they were very cooperative, but again, there's different levels of cooperation. Was was Richard really going to, was Richard Lovett going to tell me some of the darkest secrets or some of the most pivotal moments that he's had at his agent? No, particularly given the fact that he's still running the place, you know? And I think Brian is a very private person, uh, even though he has a public... Uh, you know, stance. And I mean, Kevin was easier because Kevin Huvain, he just loves being an agent. Like you see him at this award shows. He's like Meryl Streep's date or he's with Sarah. Just like, first of all, he has unbelievable clients. 
And he just, he like loves being an agent. You know, people ask me all the time, when do you think they're going to retire? When do you think they're going to turn over to another generation? You know, which is funny because that used to be the case with when Mike Ovitz, Ron Meyer, and Bill Haber were there. Everybody was like, well, when are they going to give the keys to the Young Turks? And now these guys are in their late 50s and people are saying that, mid to late 50s, or people are saying that to them. But um, I think each of the three of them are very, very different. And that's probably the key to their success, which is there's not a lot of duplication of effort. They each have their own way of operating. It's just funny, like you said, it's so different now because now it's way more about like what clients are on what TV shows. It's the UFC, it's sports, it's so many different things. It's also about parts managers. To- yeah. I mean, the managers, because the managers... They can produce. Can, can, they can produce. Yeah. And so, you know, everybody now, you look at the executive producer credits on shows, and, you know, there are a lot of managers on there. But so, so Larry, who's got such a great career, he really started late, wasn't doing great, and Seinfeld happens, which barely happened, almost gets canceled, becomes the most successful sitcom in history. And then, you know, he was a stand-up comic. He decides he's going to do his own show at, I don't even know how old he is at that point, 50 plus. He's going to be in front of the camera. And he makes it as good as Seinfeld. I mean, like, what's your thoughts on that whole trajectory? Because it is, for everyone out there, it is a story about someone like who did not give up because Larry was thrown off of SNL. I mean, he had one sketch that got made. I think he had one sketch, and that was like a couple of years. I mean, that 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 was tough. And also, when he was a stand-up, I mean, he's the first one to admit that there were times they would, sometimes they'd put him at the end of the night because you never knew. Like he could go out there and just say, "I'm not feeling it," or "You guys are a bunch of, you know, you, you guys are deadbeats." I'm, I'm le-. like, it was he was not pandering. It's amazing to hear. See, I, I just thought that Larry David was one of those guys that from day one, everything he touched turned to gold. He oh had a, God, he had a string no. of, of financial ruin. By the way, Larry financial ruin. Larry was broke. What? Financial yeah. ruin. And then all of a sudden, Seinfeld, boom. It's not, by the it. way, it's not all of a sudden. And Seinfeld comes out. Reviews are not great. Ratings are not great. And they're ready to cancel the show. And then I think you should do the definitive podcast about Seinfeld. But Seinfeld, you can, which was great from the start, but the difference kicks in when Larry starts doing these, which is what he does on Curb, these incredible, you know, everyone talks Seinfeld, nothing happens. I mean, the intricacies of 22-minute storytelling, starting probably in season three, I think, maybe in two, are so mind-boggling because when you think about a Seinfeld or a Curb episode, you go, wait, that was the same episode that this stuff was happening? C and D stories and all and, and all these circuitous routes that all then come together. Yeah, I mean it's like it's so ridiculous. And you know, and then he left. People think that Larry was on the show till the end. Yeah. He he left. Didn't want to do anything. I mean, it was just taking a break and then wanted to get back on the road. It's pretty wild. I did not know that. Yep, <laughs> Kevin's not. learning a lot. Yeah, I today. just I just thought that Larry David was just one of those guys. I didn't no. realize that he was like a, maybe if like a failed stand-up comedian, he somehow ended up wow, what a somehow ended up story. a billionaire. With, somehow uh, ended up a lot you know, richer with, with with two of the greatest sitcoms in history, and I think si- Curb, especially when it started. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's not an actor <laughs> going, "I'm going to become the star," and this and that, and and you're right, which I'm sure you talk a lot about. I know we're not talking about the HBO book, but it, no one else would have done that except for HBO and go, okay, let's have this yeah. guy. Knock off. He did the it show. at a price too, right? He did yeah, it at a but price. whatever. But then he turns it into art that is on a whole other level. The best episodes of Curb are. You what know, are your What are your two favorite? Well, I mean the my favorite oh, I, moment. I couldn't even answer that. I love them. All. My favorite moment in Curb history, which is so sickly disturbing, 
is when his mother dies. His father telling she him- She didn't want us to bother you? He didn't want to call him home from vacation is so geniusly funny and so rooted in Jewish guilt in a way that I find it as good as Shakespeare. I and, really do. And the timing of Rich Kind coming in goes, oh, you missed a good one. <laughs> I was like, that is just like, you, you called him? Yes, well, he wasn't busy. You know, we, your mother's last words were she didn't want to bother you. I mean, it's just, you know, that's what I find so incredible about it. Seinfeld really started out as just like, oh, it, you know, it was an influence on me because Seinfeld started doing those um, stories that continued on, which was very rare for sitcoms, yeah. you know? And then Curb really takes it to a whole other level. All within a season, though. Really, season arcs. Season right. arcs, right. you know, and definitely episode arcs. But sometimes multi-season arcs don't really... Um, you know, or he doesn't even try and do them. But within the seasons, I mean, they're really clear. Because the other thing is, you never knew, I mean, whether he's coming back or not. Right, right. Like, that could have been, was that the last show? I mean, you know, the last thing Larry's going to do is do a finale because he was involved with the Seinfeld finale and was really, I think, justifiably pissed off about, you know, some of the people who ridiculed it as much as they did. Right. So you said what my favorite, the Palestinian chicken was probably the other one. But for you, what what's your favorite episodes of Curb? Um, I mean, Palestinian chicken is, I mean, of course, you know, um, but I think the doll's head is, I, I think that the way that... The surrogate was funny. The, the way that Susie, like, talks to them in that, uh, it's just brilliant. And uh, the way that they're willing to do anything to just to try and not be, you know, under attack from her. Um, I thought that was that that was pretty good. But, yeah, they're all they're all they're all terrific. It's all it's all phenomenal. But switch switching gears. What What's your favorite sport? You're a sports guy, big sports guy. I wrote the ESPN book. Let's talk sports. Who's, who's I mean. Baseball. You're a baseball. I'm a baseball guy. Yankee yeah. fan? I, yes, but uh, well, my son and I are Yankees fans, but I grew up as a Philly fan. Oh, okay. Phillies, yeah. And, uh, and Eagles and uh, Sixers and Lakers. And so we've always been, you know, spread out. There's nobody I hate more than the Phillies, the fucking Flyers. I grew up like diehard Islander fan and the Flyers fans. And for anyone in Philly tough. out there yeah. who eat horse shit when you win a Super Bowl, you're just fucking out. Greatest moment, sports moment, though, was being in Minnesota when the Eagles finally won the Super Bowl with my son and uh, when Brady's pass hit the ground. And, uh, and it was, it was over. like, <laughs> yeah. that's like, it's pretty, pretty, I mean, Patriots fans are used to it, but you know, in Philadelphia, we didn't have a moment like that for 50 years. The last thing I want to talk to you about, since you, you did write the SNL book, which is so amazing. And Belushi was such a hero of mine growing up. What, what did you watch the doc on Showtime? I did. What'd you think? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I have to say that they had access to a bunch of stuff that I had never seen before. And I think they really captured 360 degrees of John Belushi because it is, it's such a, a I mean, there's so many paradoxes and so much bitterness and then bittersweet quality. And, and, and I also, I think it was a great showcase for Dan Aykroyd, who is just an amazing human being and their friendship. Remember what he said at uh, John's funeral? Uh, he was, um, a great man, but a bad boy. And um, the the love that they, you know, they had for each other and the way that Ackroyd, you know, kept on supporting him and stuff. I thought that was a incredible part of it. I also felt like it was the most interesting port of entry I'd seen into the relationship with Judy. 
you know, because I think that has been misunderstood through the years. And so I thought they did it. I thought it's pretty, yeah, I, pretty I, good. I loved it. Did you see it? No. Oh, you should watch it's, it. What is it on? Is that Showtime? Yeah, it's Showtime. Time. And, and, you know, anyone who, I have no idea what our, who our audience is, which is growing nicely. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if they know, like the younger audience, if they know these guys that I grew up on idolizing. John Belushi, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase. Aykroyd. Chevy Chase was my idol. I hated my cat, Chevy, you know, even though uh, he wasn't, I had a nice meal with him, but he apparently Apparently wasn't the uh, the nicest guy in the world. Sometimes, so, yeah. I mean, I had a great meal with him, except for Peter Sussman interrupting by screaming <laughs> Doug Ellen in the middle of my meal, and Chevy Chase was like, "Some guy's like yelling your name over there." But uh, well, they better know Bill Murray. Yeah, no, they. I mean, I think they know him, but I, they're not. They're familiar. just not going back and watching it. I mean, it's it's just, no. It doesn't feel not... like whether I know it. Or I don't know what the younger people like. They're not going back and watching Animal House now and understanding that that wasn't some raunchy comedy. That that was genius subversive comedy written by some of the giants whoever did it you know and 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 i hope they don't pull a dr seuss on it though oh god um i mean it's yeah what do you think about what's going on with with all the stuff i mean i you know i mean what what what's the right angle because of course we all want to grow we all want to be better you know i've talked about this before eddie murphy raw i could recite every single line when i was 11 years old and some of them are you know if i said it now eddie I'd be murphy be the first one to say he cringes when he sees it but uh, but anyway i, I want to know jim what 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 is your thought how do you how do you go back i mean i just think that it's 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 incredibly unfair to detach a piece of film or a book or whatever from the context of when it was written and when it was created. There's just different cultural sensibilities and different orthodoxies we have about what is right and what is wrong. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, goes on. I mean, even in trading places, I mean... Oh, my God. Watch that recently. The jerk, too, you know. Yeah, but in trading places, Jim Belushi's dressed up as a gorilla. He walks around and just grabs this woman and, like, he'd be in jail today. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, and all not to mention some of the dialogue even in in trading places where, you know... For a commercial comedy, but, you know, I mean, mean, like, Soul Man was a movie that, you know, apparently was was deemed releasable by things that now, obviously, looking back at it, this, so I, I agree with you. It's it's a tough time right now, and and to me, revisionist history is is one of the scariest things that's going on right now because you do you have to understand what things were like then, and and comedy for me has had such a great place in moving things forward. And Eddie Murphy did that, Richard Pryor did that, and um, you know to look back at these guys and kind of George Carlin, George Carlin, of course, you know, and I mean, but I don't think Otis Day and the Knights could appear in the animal in animal house now. Right. They would just say, forget that scene. Right. Are you, are you kidding? Right. I mean, they're just so, you know, I mean, you got you to gotta put it in perspective of what we learned since then, but not trash that. Yeah. Well, everybody who's listening, you got to go look back at that stuff. Animal House, John Belushi movies, the Blues Brothers with Chevy Chase, uh, 80s SNL, 70s SNL, like right before Chris Farley, that whole, I mean, those guys, you know, they, they, they started it. They it was the best. Crowd. It was the best. So, um, you know, Chris Farley died the same age as Belushi. It's so, I did not know that. 33, Nuts. when he went to SNL. Belushi was 33 years old. When they that. went to, uh, when Chris first got to SNL, he went to wardrobe and wanted to try on some of the stuff that Belushi had worn and it was his hero and they both wound up dying at 33. Was it in the book? Because I think they said that like you don't you you can aspire to be comedically John Belushi but you don't want to be John Belushi and uh, 
sad because, I mean, both of them. I did not know that they were that young. I mean, yeah. I guess when you're younger, it, it, everybody just feels so much older, but 33 years old. I mean, yeah, I mean, John Belushi was just getting started. I believe he would have been a great dramatic actor as well, like Bill Murray's become, like Eddie Murphy's become, you know. Well, thank you. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, Jim, this was really great, and uh, we appreciate it, and everybody out there, these are real books. I gotta be honest, I can't wait to read the CAA Power You can take this because I have it, but I I have all of these books. I have the other ones I don't have to say. That I paid for. Connolly gets his free. On behalf of my uh, three kids and my ex-wife, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thanks so much. I really, really do appreciate this. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this was awesome. And that wraps up another episode of Victory the Podcast. We'll be back next week with Jeff Ross making fun of Kevin Connolly, hopefully. I can't wait. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jim. Can you see it? Picture me rolling.